all the news from the UK and Spain. So, a very good evening. Uh, it is definitely autumnal. In fact, it's getting near winter time now, and uh, it's gone a little bit colder tonight. The 2nd of December, we've had a nice bright day, not being cold, uh, but then again, it's not been hot. And certainly, if you're walking on a beach, you'll know that there's been a bit of wind about. So, uh, without any further ado, let me get myself over the mountain. We'll drive for the best part of uh, three quarters of an hour, and I should find Terry Whitehead. Stand by. So, a very good evening. Welcome, Terry. How are you? What's your weather like, and how are you feeling? I'm feeling really good. Um, the weather has been a bit colder today. As you say, it's very windy uh, early in the night. I saw some wind damage as I was driving around today in different places of the coast. Um, and the, it was a lovely day yesterday. Uh, had a bit of lunch just off the beach in, in Altai. It was very pleasant. But today's a different animal. It's brighter, but like you say, it's quite a bit cooler. Yeah. Well, the last sort of couple of days I've been back down this end of Spain. Uh, prior to that, I've been up in the Basque Country where it was absolutely freezing. It was uh, just about uh, zero. Uh, coming down, I drove really right through the Basque Country full of snow. And uh, then as we got further down and um, hit places like Navarra and La Rioja, it started to get bright again. Um, Zaragoza, there was nothing at all there. We got to Teruel, and you could see that the snow, normally in the results, you can see them from the road, but there didn't seem to be much about. And then, of course, down to Valencia, and uh, it really started to get um, nice and the sort of temperatures that we like again. So, um, yeah, um, certainly this time of the year, we do see the changes coming. And um, I don't know about you, I, I'm not the biggest fan of cold weather. But then again, no, not, it has been oppressively hot, hasn't it, as well? Yeah, I don't do cold. Yeah, you know, you can always put clothes on to keep warm. You can't. You can only take go as far as your skin in the summer to keep cool. So uh, somewhere in between would be very nice. I'm up, up to La Mancha this weekend, up to a little Pueblo in the middle of nowhere, which I love going to, and have a few days up there. Yeah. Peace and quiet. But it's, uh, again, it'll be below zero at night, uh, maybe about 8 or 10 degrees during the day. Right. Okay, well, let's see what we've got for you this week. Uh, we'll start with, um, let's have a look. Let's see where we'll start. We'll start with this one. Not been able to scour the papers as much as I normally would like to, but a heartbroken family has won a battle for safety checks at Spanish hotels after the death of a British teenager from a Magaluf balcony. Tom Channon, 18, was celebrating at the end of his A-levels on holiday with his friends when he fell 50 foot to his death over a knee-high wall at the Eden Rock Complex in Mallorca in July 2018. His parents were devastated to learn Tom died just a month after another young British holidaymaker, Thomas Hughes, a 20-year-old, died in a fall at the same hotel in June that year. And uh, no fence had been erected since. A third Briton, Natalie 
Cormac, a 19-year-old from West Kilbride in Ayrshire, also died at the Eden Rock Complex in April 2018 while trying to climb from one balcony to the next. And the Foreign Office has now gained the ability to carry out Tom's checks at hotels they fear may need additional safety measures. The checks allow consular staff to liaise with hotels and carry out safety checks at resorts. Tom's check is part of a training programme for staff at the British Consulate seeking to improve the safety of holidaymakers. Oof, not nice, um, obviously, especially if you are the parents and family of these young people. Absolutely dreadful news. First of all, let's go to uh, Magaluf, part on the island of Mallorca. Um, I've got to say, it would not be on a list of one of my favourite places. What about you, Terry? No, it isn't. No, I, was, no, I was saying I worked in Palma, in, in the uh, the capital of Mallorca, if you want to call it that way. Uh, but I didn't. I never got around to the um, to the coastal areas. You know, the the popular coastal areas. Not just working. But um, I'm sorry to hear of any any anybody's death, obviously, especially young lives with so much in front of them. But I I, I have to believe in Darwinian principles that if people are going to be stupid, then it might just shorten their life. You know, it's um, what the hell can can the government do about <laughs> about the problem? If it, if people are that stupid and uh, and ignorant to believe that they, they can climb from a balcony to balcony, then what will be will be. It, it's very sad, but. I'm sorry, but it's going to happen. I think there was a an outbreak of this a um, number of times, actually, not just not just uh, on one occasion. Uh, I remember in uh, I think it was a previous podcast that we did, and um, we we were sort of discussing this um, idea that people have uh, got the fun of. There were two things. One was jumping from balcony to balcony. And yeah. the other one was diving into the swimming pool from the balcony, which... Yeah, it, it used there was... Oh, God. 1830s, I don't know if they're still going. Um, but they, they they occupied a big hotel in um, the centre of Benidorm. And regular people were diving off the uh, uh, their balconies into the pool below there. That was a regular occurrence. Um, there's been the odd death in Benidorm. I, mean, I, I do admit, I think it must... I think Mallorca seems to hold the record... Per capita, with people jumping off balconies or falling from balconies, shall we say? Uh, I lost a very dear friend thinking about it, going way back, um, back in the seventies. Uh, who uh, <laughs> I think he had a drink and he was doing a bit of a prank and he was he was hanging off his balcony, and he was a big lad um, trying to frighten his <laughs> to give his girlfriend a bit of a fright. And but she was a while before she came back into the room. And there he was hanging up the balcony, but at this point he'd lost all strength. He was a big lad, and he hadn't got the strength to climb back up again. Imagine the guy hanging on off the handrail on the wrong side of the balcony. Well, that's mm. what he was doing. Uh, he slipped and fell to his death, sadly. Terrible. Uh, he was a scamster thinking about it. Hmm. Looking at uh, the way people behave when they come on holiday, I mean, you know, we both know uh, Benidorm. Yeah. You... Uh, had bars there and you, you've seen yeah. the sort of people that, that do tend mm. to sort of come to the centre of Benidorm. Now, you know, it, it can be quite rough. It can be quite intimidating if you don't know where you should be going and that sort of thing. 
Um, but when I went to the island of Mallorca, I mean, you know, I was revisiting places that um, I really did like. Um, I, I, we came on holiday um, as uh, it was it was our honeymoon, actually, the first visit. So, you know, looking at the way the island has changed, I mean, when we came the first time, there was no motorway. But from the hotel, to the now there is a, a really good road to the airport, as there is in Ibiza, for example. And um, so you can see the infrastructure has improved. Um, yeah. But the one thing that you really can never sort of legislate for is, is the stupidity of people when they come abroad on holiday. Is it the sun? Is it the sangria? Is, the, is it the beer? It's, it's a generalisation, and I think people um, like to live a reality that isn't theirs. They become uh, the, the classical Walter Mitty. They become people they've always wanted to be. They feel that in Benidorm they can do anything because nobody knows them. So uh, if they were to uh, act in a certain way in their own town, it would stand out like a sore thumb. But because nobody knows them, over here they can uh, do anything they want. And of course, aided by sufficient amount of booze, and in the old days, it was sufficient amount of bad booze, there was an awful lot of uh, hooch that was sold in, when, in my day in Benidorm. You, you, you very rarely could get a proper make of uh, Bacardi or uh, uh, gin, vodka, etc., uh, it was always uh, called Garafa, which was um, basically wood alcohol, methanol. And um, the, the, the discos sold it en masse because they used to charge 100 pesetas and free drink all night. And the only way you can do that is by giving people <laughs> not the drink they actually think they're going to get. Uh, and uh, there were a number of people. There was a classic case going back in the news. It was an English couple. Um, they weren't kids, but he, he, he'd gone out and got pretty well tanked up on the bad stuff. And he ripped his insides out. He died. Oh. He, bled to, he bled to death. That was quite a publicised case, but I'm probably going back into the early 80s or something like that. Yeah. But, in the, but over the years, it's it's diminished. I'm not saying it still goes on. I'm not sure it does at all. I'm out of that game now. But it certainly went on in the 70s and early 80s without a shadow mm. of a doubt. You, you, nine times out of ten, you were not going to get the drink you wanted to get. It might have come out of a bottle that looks like it, but um, all the bottles used to have sprinklers on, so you have to make sure... The bottle had a sprinkler on it when they poured the drink. If it didn't, it means because they removed the sprinkler to fill it up with something else. Uh, um, so you all have to be a little bit wise. Uh, and what, what, I, what I was surprised at was reading about uh, Mangaloof. No, I'm not surprised by the events. Um, mm. Mangaloof, if you go there and it's not in the height of the season, it actually is quite a nice place. Um, we mm. went, it was just off-season, so it wasn't full of the sorts of people that I latterly saw um, mm. in the newspapers and on the TV screens, obviously puking and um, tottering round and being out of control. But then again, you can see that in every town in Britain um, from yeah. the TV now. I mean, unfortunately... Well, I say Friday night and Saturday night, the, 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 the city centres are littered with, with people sitting in gutters, thrown up and uh, acting disgracefully, and they've probably only been out for an hour. Because they, they fire all these shots down their neck. I mean, where does that bloody come from? Yeah. And, and, and so the, the, I think the whole idea of drinking is getting as much alcohol into your system as quickly as possible. Alcohol is a poison. Alcohol, it kills people. People go, oh, yeah, alcohol is a poison. And your liver has to fight very, very, very hard to get the poison out of your system, i.e. Yeah. the alcohol. And while it's doing that, it can't be looking after the rest of your body against like colds and flus and, and other viruses and things. 
So your, your, your liver works 100% trying to get the alpha out of your system. But if you fire it into your body at such a rate of knots, uh, the, the, the liver just can't cope, and the, the rest is history. In it. And, and I mean, I can't believe it. Now, these girls, especially, will spend like four or five hours uh, dressing themselves up and getting all the makeup done, looking absolutely pristine, and then have their friends around their house. Apparently, that's the way to do it now. And you get you, you have half a bottle of vodka each before you go out. Then you get to where you're going. You get half a dozen shots down your neck. An hour later, you're throwing up and, and falling over in the curb. How is that a good night out? <laughs> I don't understand it. I mean, I, I only ever used to drink beer. So you've got more chance of drowning before you're getting drunk from drinking beer normally. You know, but you and the pubs were that packed in, in the UK. Um, we generally had to we'd go to the bar and order two at a time because you were standing at the bar for ages trying to get served. And, of course, half past ten where I lived is when the bell went. So uh, it was I, was I was never drunk in the pub, but I had a 15-minute walk home from the pub. And by the time I got home and the fresh air hit me, I certainly have felt it a little bit, that's for sure. Yeah. But nowadays, it's just vast amounts of... I don't understand it. I don't know where it's come from. I don't know where people have got the idea you have to have enormous amounts of really strong, undiluted alcohol down your belly to, to be able to enjoy yourself. I just can't see it. I wonder whether or not it's anything related to the soaps, because if you watch any of the soaps, um, in, oh, yeah. invariably, that's all that they do. They you, drink. You can't, have a, you can't have a domestic crisis about getting a bottle of white wine out. Every soap you look at, if there's the, the opposite, it's generally women, uh, the, 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 a bottle of white wine suddenly, they'll come around, we'll have a drink. And we all know drinking alcohol is a depressant. And people drinking and thinking they're going to get have fun and get happy, it, alcohol is a depressant. Mm. It's, it's not. It, it, it releases your inhibitions. That's when you think you're having a good time and all you're doing is looking absolute, making yourself an idiot. We've all done it. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I enjoy having a good drink with mates in good company, but we don't go out to to get completely blasted and falling over drunk. We go out to have a, have a convivial few hours together and having a slow drink. We don't. You know, bang half a bottle of vodka down my neck and half a dozen shots, and then half an hour later, I'm, I'm sitting in the gutter thinking, "What have I done?" Well, it's 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 it's, it's a very English thing. Spanish don't do it. No, I mean, my kids are born here, uh, and they don't drink. Actually, funny enough, um, and yet obviously we all every Sunday we always went out for lunch right from when they were babies, all the way through. The kids always know how to behave themselves at a table, which is stands them in good stead for when they're older. We would all be having the drink. Of course, they wouldn't be, but they'd see us having the drink, but enjoying ourselves. We're not, you know, we're having a glass of wine or maybe a beer, but we're not sitting in the corner chucking shots down our necks and, and guzzling half a bottle of vodka. So they, they grow up with the the right in inverted commas image of, of why drinking really is. Yet when I used to have to take my daughter to, into Benidorm and at midnight, because nothing started until midnight, yeah. and then I'd go and pick them up again about half past five in the morning. And, and her and her and her mates, and none of them were, were any of them were worse than wear for drink. They'd all had a good time drinking coke and soft drinks. You know, it's it's they really enjoy. They knew how to enjoy themselves without getting drunk. Well, I know people in Britain do that. I um, you, you know, I I played rugby on the Saturdays, and invariably. I was going off to work in the clubs and I didn't really get very, very drunk or even yeah. that tiddly, really. 
yeah. because basically the other days of the week I was always uh, on the judo mat, which of course means you can't drink anyway, or yeah. at least um, if you do get, uh, if you're going into a club with um, alcohol on your breath, you get kicked out. So yeah, yeah, it's funny. It is the way some people are, but not for me. And um, let me just add in that um, if you go to Mallorca and choose where you want to go, I mean, I went to a place called Manacor, which is where uh, Rafa N- Nadal comes from and uh, totally different totally different experience with the caves of Drac not that far away and uh, you know I wanted to see the tennis club where he originated and yeah it was a good visit and of course if you go up in the mountains you can find all sorts I mean I, I even found a, where a saint used to live apparently um, in one of the places there but I can't remember the name Thank of the village <laughs> okay well let's find you something else stand by um, I'll remind our listeners who we are You're listening to Vince Tracy. Okay, my special guest tonight, by the way, is Terry Whitehead. What's in the news this week, especially from the UK and from Spain? You're calling. Well, I've been looking at what's been happening in the UK with Neil this week. Uh, It doesn't really sound that good, um, but we've got some different things that happen here in Spain. And one of them is to do with the fashion world. It's now seeing its very own succession moment play out in real life. This is a, a TV thing uh, i don't know the series but it's a series which sees a father grooming his children to take control of his empire and uh, this is to do with spain's richest man and founder of the brand zara amantio ortega has announced his youngest daughter marta ortega perez uh, she's 37 will take over as chair of the retailer's parent company inditex bypassing her two older siblings Marta, who is the only child of Amancio and his second wife, Flora Perreth, takes over in April at the world's largest fashion group, which has 6,654 shops and 162,450 staff. Amancio has two children from his first marriage to Zara co-founder Rosalia Meira Goyenechea. Um, Marcos, 50, who was born with cerebral palsy, and Sandra, 53, who became Spain's richest woman when she inherited her mother's 7% stake in Inditex in 2013. She now works for a charitable foundation founded by her mum. To go back to uh, Marta, uh, she's been groomed for the role from a young age, having started out age 22 as a sales associate at the Zara store on Kings Road in London and going on to work for the £75 billion company ever since. The 67-year-old mother of two will be the leader of the parent company of a portfolio of world-famous high street brands, including Zara, Massimo Dutti, uh, Utake, uh, Stradivarius and Bershka. She will be taken over the role from Pablo Isla, who has been chairman for over a decade after Amancio stepped down as chairman in 2011. I'll just give you a bit more information. Inditex is majority owned by Amancio Ortega. Uh, he, of course, Spain's richest man with 59.3% stake worth 445 billion um it's given him pounds 
Now 85, he founded Zara with his ex-wife Rosalia in 1975 in Spain's northwestern region of Galicia, where it is still based. It's grown into an empire with annual sales worth 17.5 billion across eight brands, including those brands uh, Massimo Duffy, Pull&Bear, Stradivarius. And in the UK, it has more than 100 shops, including 66 Zara stores. Zara's profits soared to $726 million in the three months to July as online sales rose and shops remained open in key markets. It made just um, $940 million across the world of last year as COVID took its toll. Okay, now you know more about um, this type of thing being here from a long, long time now, Terry. Um, He is involved in all sorts of charitable things as well, isn't he? I've no idea, Vince. I've no idea. He's a very... um, He's a very well-known character. I mean, say he's 85 now, bless him. He's a very well-known character and he had a a, a very interesting um way of, 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 of operating his business which obviously proved extremely successful as i remember i think originally all the clothes were made in the same color and then they were taken off somewhere else to be dyed whatever color you wanted to and that allowed him to cut prices and become almost like a primark if you like i suppose really but but with with fashion fashionable items at, at really good prices he, 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 he certainly shopped well um but of course with the, with COVID and closing shops for, for extremely long periods, and discouraging people from even you know going shopping, um, it, it's it's took its toll on on all businesses. There's many in the UK. There's many high street companies have have closed down over the years, and so I think at the moment now it now is a time for for, for Zara, Zara to go digital. Uh, as most things now, people buy online. I mean, I, I, I would imagine that a good I was I would hazard a guess and say fifty percent of this year's Christmas presents are going to be bought online, uh, and and throughout the year people are, are using the an excuse of of not risking out to go out shopping to actually buy online buy online. I must admit it's very convenient sitting in an armchair and buying something. Um, I hate shopping. As my wife knows, I normally get parked at the nearest bar and then she wanders off and does the shopping and collects me at a certain stage. But it, it's to, to my mind, he's 85. Bless him, he's, you know, he's, he's got to give up, and he, he, he's simply that. I think they're going to see less and less of the shops, uh, and more and more uh, online online co- commerce, um, which makes sense, but is extremely sad for all of us because in reality, we will all be doing everything online. That, that shops will just disappear, and the danger of that is, um, is that you then get cartels uh, and control of prices. And there's no, uh, there's no competition anymore. It's uh, that's the sad, dangerous thing. Like Amazon, Amazon are enormous. Yeah. Uh, and and and, and uh, the, I think they take like forty percent cut. Down. I think I've been reading somewhere, wherever you want to sell off them, they want like a forty percent cut. Plus, you have to sign. If you want to sell your product via Amazon, you have to sign an agreement that allows them uh, to make that same article elsewhere and cut you out of business. If it becomes very popular, then Amazon go, right, we're not going to sell your products anymore. We're actually going to make our own. Uh, and you actually give them the right to do that. In the meantime, you've made a lot of money on something. There's no doubt about it. But it's sad because we're in the hands of, of very few people. We, uh, it's, it's sad that now everyone goes shopping in shopping centres rather than the high street. That in most towns now, certainly in, certainly in Spain and in 
and more, more so in the UK, the city centre high street has, has finished. As a, a constructor, have you ever been involved in anything to do with a shopping centre in any shape or form? No, I've, I've built franchises uh, all over Spain, um, which is a similar thing. It's it, a franchise is, is a proven business, a proven product and a proven business uh, manner, the way things are sold. And, and to buy a, as long as you buy a decent franchise, you know you're going you're gonna to make money from, from day one. And the one I was involved in certainly did. It was a tremendous business. I was very happy to have the contract to build all over Spain for and build warehouses and shops. Um, which is it's not it's, it takes the worry out of you starting your own business venture. You know, people have taken the risk for you in the past, and you use their business model. Yeah. But with 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 um, shopping centres, you're in the hands of the landlords, and as they become stronger and stronger, the people go to a shopping centre rather than the high street. They the landlords then have control of you and your business, and they can price you out very easily as people want to get in. They can push your rent up until you go, that's it, I can't do it anymore. Um, but shopping centres locally I go to, they're not hustling and bustling as much as they are in the UK. Here in Spain, they don't seem to be as that popular, though I'm sure they probably are, but you don't see as many, many uh, as much footfall in Spanish shopping centres, not the ones I've been to. Like I said, I don't do a lot of shopping. But in the UK, when I've been dragged around shopping centres, it's really, really busy, really busy and packed. Well, I know over our lifetime, for example, um, probably what age would I have been? Say about um, in mid-twenties anyway. You know, I used to sell to what we would call mar and par shops. And uh, basically, you know, you'd go round knocking on doors, trying to get your product in. And eventually you'd have uh, whatever the hit rate would be. You'd have success or failure, which whichever way it was. Um, it was only really when I'd worked in the nightclubs and then we had a big fire. And so um, after that, I really needed to get a job to get back on my feet. And then I started going to look more at business and I started working for a brokerage company. Uh, we were taking on the big names in the food industry. So we'd just basically go to see the the big multiples um, or exceedingly large um, individual companies. But the, the thing really that began to sort of impress me then was the number of places you'd go to and quite frankly, um, you'd come out of one shopping centre and um, you'd go to the next one. It was exactly the same and you'd go to the next town. Yeah, same format. Yeah, so really we've tended to get nearer to probably that with what's happening in Spain. I mean, the massive shopping centre went up to in Bilbao was absolutely ginormous. But again, yeah. we've got quite a big one up here in Ondara, and we've got another yeah. big one, um, as we both know, um, in Finistrat. Yeah. So really, uh, what do you expect to find in these places? Well, you'd expect to find Azara, but when you actually look at those other names, Pull and Bear and uh, Bashika and all these other um, names, you know, it's all the same company by those things, isn't it? Or, or at least... Well, they, they tend to do that, same as in the UK. There's, there's not, it's, it's sad. I mean, the, the, the big shots in the UK that, that disappeared off the high street uh, in, in the last 10 years is tremendous. I mean, British Home Stores, Debenhams. I mean, massive, massive big names. Have gone. So where have they gone? Where where are their 
where do people go to buy their products or buy, buy that type of product? Of course, these big shops had massive rents and massive overheads regarding staff. And quite often you went to certain shops because they had really, really good staff. You were attended. It's nice to be attended to. It was very nice. Now it's sort of hang them high, stack them high and sell them cheap um, when you go to these places. And staff are just standing there normally chewing, chewing them. And because I know that you've got nowhere else to go, you're going to have to buy their product. Uh, it, it's, I don't know how they're going to get that back. I mean, they're struggling with different things in the UK of uh, ideas of how to get the high street back. I think what they're mainly trying to do in England is get the high street back. You put restaurants in there um, to get people to use, use the high street as restaurants. But what they have to do is think about parking, because that's one thing I've never thought about in the UK. If you make parking easier near the high street, then you might get a bit more, more trade. But whereas the big uh, shopping centres, by, by right, have enormous parking. Um, plus, the other thing is, A, in the UK, it's nice and warm and dry in a shopping centre, rather than going from shop to shop in the pouring rain, yeah. as we used to. Of course, here in Spain, it's lovely to go to a shopping centre because you do all your shopping in air-conditioned comfort, uh, which is really nice. But it's a shame because it's so sad to see the demise of the small personal shops um, and the likes of Bangor, it's all bloody Chinese anyway. Yeah. Walls to wall. You know, it's, yeah. it's, I don't know. I think it's interesting where it's going to end. I really don't know. Just going back to Amantio Ortega a minute, um, yeah. uh, it's very interesting when you look at, uh, he was the youngest of four children and then his dad was a railway worker and um, they had to move up to a Coruña in his job um, shortly afterwards um, Amantio found a job as a shop hand for a local shirt maker and um, which still that, that that same business is still sitting on the same corner in Coruña and he learned to make clothes by hand and yeah. um, it's reported that he lost 10 billion dollars as a result of this coronavirus pandemic yeah. Um, another thing that uh, I think is worth knowing about him in July 2017, and it's the 20, it was the second edition of the AEF Awards, the Spanish Association of Foundations awarded him um, the 2017 Philanthropic Initiative category. He donated 300 million euros to fight cancer across Spain. And those um, dollars and um, whatever, I suppose it was euros, uh, were invested in the purchase of 440 machines to detect cancer. As a result of this, the number of Spanish public hospitals equipped with stereotactic radiotherapy machines has risen from uh, 210 to 700. However, these decisions were not unanimously welcomed and were criticised by some political parties like Podemos. Recently, (laughs) uh, news indicate that he bought the Troy block complex known as to the public as one of the buildings where Amazon Seattle has its headquarters. That's interesting. Um, you wonder whether or not he's got anything to do with that. Um, Terry, you, you, there was a wry grin or smile from you there. Um, what, did, what did you know about Pedamus that would make it a little less likely? That, well, um, Pedamus <laughs> being the ultra-left tiny political party which finds itself sharing power in Madrid um, which it would, would never have ever happened in a million years but because the uh, PSOE um, 
won the election, but without a majority in the parliament. They had to go and seek bed partners, and they seeked out Podemos, which is ultra-left, um, um, as, as their partners, to give them the numbers to try and that and a few other uh, weird political parties, to give them the numbers to be able to run some sort of government, because uh, we haven't had one for quite a few years. It's, 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 it's been coalitions as such, which this is. But of course, Podemos being ultra-left, the, the arch enemy of the ultra left is, is capitalism. Yeah. So even even if if uh, Amantio has been been spending billions of his of his euros on helping the the, the, the Spain at large with 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 uh, cancer machinery etc etc, he's he is the uh, the devil in their eyes. And of course they're going to criticise him because they're politicians. That's all politicians do. They just spend their day criticising the other party, irrespective of what of what the truth is. They just spend their life criticising people. And I'm frankly sick and disgusted with it in Spain, in the UK, in the States, now in Germany, in France, in Switzerland. It's going on. It's just uh, politics has just become a slanging match. Yeah. So you just slag off the other side. Irrespective of your policies, it doesn't matter what your policies are, because if you do get thrown into power, you're never going to enact the policies you, you, you promised anyway. You just do your own thing which has been proven time and time and time again. I've yet to see a political party come in and do what it did promise. Um, they lie. And at, at some point or other, at some point or other, the world's going to go, wait a minute, this is wrong. This, this, this isn't democracy. Democracy no. is when you vote for the, per, the person that you think is the right person for the job. But when I... that person gets voted in on, on, a, on, a, on a bank of lies uh, and laughs at you, when, you've, when, when he's got power, you know, knowing full well that he's lied to you for you to give him power. How is that a democracy? So these things have got to change. Me, so I haven't got a clue how it's going to happen, but it's got to change. Yep. Okay. Let me. Um, let's move on. I've got another story coming up for you. As you know, I was looking for things that uh, are not exactly what we're getting everywhere every day every television screen every radio station um dogs and i would have thought this was common sense written large but we'll see what you think dogs that are only fed once a day may be less likely to go to develop age-related conditions like gastrointestinal orthopedic and liver disorders this is the University of Arizona, but written into Spanish papers. Experts analysing data on more than 24,000 pet dogs for links between feeding rates and cognitive function and health outcomes. Canines may benefit from less frequent feeding, the researcher said, because of their hunting origins, with their wolf ancestors often going for days without food. However, the team warned that further studies are needed to validate the findings and it's too early to recommend owners change their dog's feeding regimens. The research was undertaken by dog cognition expert Emily Bray of the University of Arizona and her colleagues. For nearly a century, caloric um, restriction has been known to extend lifespan and delay age-associated pathology in laboratory animals, the team wrote in their paper, noting also that time-restricted eating may also have benefits for we humans. 
Companion dogs provide a potentially powerful animal model in which better understand the relationship between diet and age-related health outcomes. Once daily feeding in dogs serves as a natural model for the intermittent fasting time-restricted feeding protocols currently being studied both in preclinical rodent models and in human trials. The researchers analysed data from the Dog Aging Project, a US initiative launched by paper author and University of Washington biologist Matt Cabellane in 2019 that aims to explore the genetic and environmental causes of canine aging. Okay, on the face of it, I thought, well, surely this is just uh, absolute... Um, common sense written in, into a paper um, mm. by people who basically um, have got nothing to do with the with the cash that they've got. What do you think? All my dogs, always, and I had dogs all my life, got fed once a day. That was it. They got fed once a day. And all my dogs live to really, really long ages. Really long, 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 far longer than they would normally live. Um, uh, and I'm not going to say that's anything to do with it. But the other thing with all my dogs is they lived outside. All my dogs lived outdoors. They never came in the house. Uh, I'd have my doors wide open in the summer, but they knew they didn't cross that line into the house. If I called them in, they might come in. But generally speaking, they didn't want to come in because they were outdoor dogs. I had kennels for them to, to, to sleep in, dotted around the house, but around, literally, around the house, areas where they could sleep. But they would sleep wherever they wanted to, under the trees, in the hedge, Whatever, you know, if it's really bad weather, then they'd, they'd sneak into the kennel. But generally speaking, they just found, found a little area that was comfortable, that felt good for them. And they lived a natural life. And I can only assume that that seemed to work and gave them the longevity that they had because they all lived really, really good age. Um, so it's music to my ears, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you walk past some dogs and you think to yourself, yeah, being overfed. Um, and then you look at the oh, owners yeah. and very often the owner... Um, mm, yeah, and um, realistically, if you uh, overfeed an animal, you then must put into the same um, suggestion that we are the supposed to be the highest order of animals. So mm. therefore, the principles has got to be the same as people were being educated by us. I mean, if we're being told oh. all the time, eat less, eat the right food, drink water, etc., etc., um, then why would you want to give your pet totally the opposite? That's what I can't understand. Well, it was, I'll tell you a little story, Vince. A long, long, long time ago, uh, in my early days here in, 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 in Spain, uh, I was in Benidorm and I was running my me, me club. And uh, a really dear friend of mine, old lady, so she was going back to England for a few weeks and she had an apartment just down the road from the club. Uh, but she had this dog. She said, can you look after me dog? I said, yeah, of course I can. She said, no, but you've got to live in the apartment. I thought, that's a because just down the road from the club. <laughs> so I went down and I said, yeah, okay. So she showed me what he had to eat and this, that and the other. And my God, the list of stuff that he had to be, had to be chicken, had to be this, had to be that. Uh, had to be uh, uh, two times a day. And, <laughs> and every morning, a half past seven, this is the truth, Vince. Every morning at half past seven, he had to have a cup of tea in a cup <laughs> on a saucer with milk and three sugars and some biscuits. And I laughed when she told me, she said, no, no, he has that every morning. So anyway, off she went to England. I spent the night in the apartment. Uh, by the time I got into my bed, it was probably about four o'clock in the morning. Uh, half past seven, crash. 
this dog come hurtling through the bedroom door and uh, slobbering away at me in bed. I go, what the hell? And, and I was in a bit of a haze, probably a drunken one. Um, and I got up and made it a bloody cup of tea with milk and three sugars and the cup, put the biscuits down. And he lapped up the tea and ate the biscuits and dribbled all over the floor and went off. And then I came to and I thought, what have I just done? <laughs> well, can I just say that for the next few weeks, the, that dog didn't have any tea and biscuits anymore. Yet, wherever I gave him, whenever I gave him it, and he was really happy. <laughs> and the you're biggest thing was, to... he never told me when she came back. <laughs> okay, here we go. You're listening to Vince Tracy and Neil Coburn. It's Europe Calling. What's in the news this week, especially from the UK and from Spain? Okay, just for our listeners, let me just um, emphasise that Neil is looking more at the UK. Uh, we're looking more at Spain. But there are certain things which, uh, when I'm reading the papers, I think, yeah, th- this is an over. Um, it's an overlap situation, which is our next story, which I did pick in the uh, Spanish papers. And it's a school urging parents not to let children watch Squid Games. This is after young people, uh, pu- young pupils, were found were uh, viewing gory, explicit scenes on TikTok and m- mobile game apps. The Netflix TV series sees debt-ridden contestants tackle survival tasks for a mammoth cash prize. It's a South Korean show based on traditional playground games, but with a sinister twitch. Um, which sees contestants shot if they fail to complete each challenge. Schools and parents have previously previously expressed concerns that the show, which is given a certificate of 15, is being watched by much younger children. Um, Now, this is in uh, Leicester, which worried a school teacher, Alison Alford, at the Ivanhoe College, Jaspi Delazouche, and she's urged parents to keep a watchful eye on what their children were watching. And the college, by the way, caters for children aged between 11 and 14 and demands for rules. Uh, OK, let, let me just quickly stay with that bit there, because uh, I do see the same sort of problem with kids here in Spain. Um, you know, they're given a, a telephone, um, but the time they spend looking at material is up to them and quite honestly um i think it doesn't matter what country you're in i think there's a problem i think a kids kids should not be looking at stuff like this and b if they're not being monitored then obviously how can the adults know whether it's a bad thing um until something actually goes wrong and maybe there's a behavioral issue Uh, terry have you ever heard of this game Oh, yeah, I have. Um, and, and the game, no, but I've heard of the film um, and the uh, and the basis of it. I've never I haven't seen an episode. I've read that it's been extremely popular. Um, I haven't got time to, to latch on to one of these things. Um, but it's uh, the, the sad thing is, Vince, as we all know, children get their, their, their version of reality from the TV screen nowadays or their, their, their computer or their telephone or their whatever, their tablet. That's their version of, of, of reality, and that is reality for them. And the sad thing is we see crimes and shootings and, and, and murders uh, carried out by younger and younger people uh, that can only really be influenced by these sort of things. You know, if, if you 
I mean, I, I used to, I remember having my cowboy hat and my couple of pistols and, and caps in me, in me gun. That made it made it, when I was a kid when uh, it made a nice noise and we had we'd play cowboys and Indians as we did, you know. But um, we didn't play beat up the copper, you know. We didn't play uh, beat up my sister. We didn't play beat shoot that young kid over there. Uh, that's but that this is what's happening. And again, that's another worry, and it's one of the things. Uh, I'm glad I am the age I am because I, it's you have to think what sort of what sort of population is this actually breeding where they believe that that is reality. Uh, you've only got to look at the States and see what happens there, where, where they're, they're controlled by television, controls everything they see, and their opinion, their own opinion, is given to them um, by depending on what they're watching. And it's just completely unreal, but to them it's real. But the whole Trump presidential campaign and, 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 and four years' tenure was just make-believe. But it wasn't. It happened. It was real. Uh, this is really, really, really frightening. And when you talk about this, the Squid Games, that's just another another angle which could well develop into something horrible. I don't know. Not even seen it, Vince. But I think just the general thing is, I believe what we're talking about is that kids don't pick up a book. They don't really have conversations. Sit down and have a chat. We were told I had in, in a restaurant yesterday. And um, it couldn't help but see uh, some younger people sit down, half a dozen people sit down. Um, and they were like mid-twenties, thirties maybe. And they were celebrating some sort of birthday. Uh, one of the ladies, well, it was quite obvious. But they were all on their phones. They, they were sat around, they'd made the effort to make a book a table, and the restaurant was a good restaurant, uh, to enjoy their company. But they were actually not really enjoying each other's company. They were enjoying their phones. Yeah, and it's just uh, my wife and I commented on it. How, how sad has how sad has this come to now? You know. Okay, well, our next story is slightly related to the lawmaking process. Um, although, again, you know, uh, we tend to sort of look more at Spanish issues. There is the issue that there are more, I think, lady members of parliament in both parliaments in the uk and spain now so let me just get this story and i'll tell you what it's all about okay this was not um last week i don't think but it was something i put to one side wanting to talk to you about uh, demands for rules barring mps from taking babies into the commons to be eased are being opposed by female politicians with children uh, the speaker has revealed this is sir lindsay hoyle in the uk parliament and he said he has been heavily lobbied not to change the regulations amid a row over a ban handed to Labour backbencher Stella Creasy. He requested a review amid an outcry over the Walthamstow MP being told she can no longer have her three-month-old son Pip with her, despite it being allowed in the past. The case has polarised opinions, uh, with some MPs saying the rules should be eased for mothers with very young children, and Downing Street indicating it was sympathetic to her case. Um, but others have accused her of grandstanding, while a meanwhile a YouGov poll found the majority of Britons believe MPs should not be allowed to take babies into the chamber. Sir Lindsay admitted MPs, uh, two MPs earlier in the week that there were differing views on the matter. And last night he told a BBC newscast uh, that 
uh, I have been heavily lobbied not to change the rules by other mothers. And um, Miss Creasy, 44-year-old, was censored by Commons authorities after bringing this pip into a debate on uh, Black Friday regulations. She pointed out she had previously been allowed to speak in debates with him in a sling, with authorities taking a relaxed view. And while she can take maternity time off with full pay, she argues, the current Commons rules do not allow her constituents to be fully represented while she's off and has continued to work. So, um, this was interesting. I read this particular comment, which is, I'm going to ask you where you pick it up from this one. Speaking as a woman who stayed home whilst raising our children, women have gradually been led to believe they can have it all the great career and the family. So they want it all. Their career or good job could take a backseat for just a few months or a year if they just made that choice to put their new baby first. Right. Um, obviously, when you get things uh, to an extreme that we have gender violence uh, to the um, degree that we have here, uh, this is just one step along the continuum about what is acceptable. And for my money, uh, I find this quite interesting because, quite frankly, um, you know as well as I do, if you're having a meeting and you've got a child chipping in or the baby mm. playing up, um, exactly. you don't get an, an awful lot of work done, do you? No. Well, I'm speaking from experience. Uh, I have the pleasure at the minute of having, not at the moment, um, um, uh, our four-month-old grandchild with us. Uh, my daughter's come over for four months, and she doesn't live with us. She's got her own house on the road. But she comes down here most days with the baby, which is beautiful to see. Um, but I'm, I'm uh, crying babies, wailing babies. Uh, it's not uh, a good environment for anybody to try and do any sort of thinking and control work. Uh, now, to me, in the UK, this is PC gone completely mad. PC has gone completely mad in the UK. And somebody at some point is going to blow the whistle and stop this ridiculous uh, PC control that's happening. The point being, if you put yourself up, from my point being, if you put yourself up to be an MP, then what should happen in, in light of what's been happening recently about people, MPs working and taking money and for companies and then using that their influence in, in Parliament and within government circles to aid that company, I believe that in future all MPs should sign a declaration saying that whatever company or work that they do will not interfere with their with their parliamentary work. That has to happen. Now, I, I, I can fully understand why, if I want to stand as an MP, I feel strongly about life in my area where I live, and I want to stand for an MP to, to help my, my area, then that's fine. But I also need to go to work. And it's no good me packing in my job to stand for an MP and then not get the job. Now what do I do? It's no good me standing for an MP, getting the job as an MP, and then sacking, sacking myself or, get, or, or resigning from the whatever job I had to concentrate on my work uh, for the government. But uh, somewhere along the line, there has to be uh, a, a happy medium, and whereby whatever work that I do is recognised that it won't interfere with my governmental work, and I will promise to do the hours that's necessary, not like Sir Geoffrey Cox was his name, uh, uh, and do the hours for my constituents and put the work in and get the results there, there they voted me for to get. You can't do that 
up with a baby sucking at your breast or screaming away amongst amongst 600 other MPs in the Houses of Parliament. It'd be, I mean, let's just, why don't everybody bring their kids in? Why don't we all, I'll take me, I'll take me, me six, me, me six-year-old grandchild in. I'll take him in and never run around the Houses of Parliament. It's, it, it, it's ridiculous. You have to draw the line and say, no, this is a serious place, a very, very serious place. It used to be a very serious place. As I said before, the Houses of Parliament, certainly in the UK, is just an area, where, a, a place that you go to, to shout and bawl and slag off the people on the other side of the room. Not a lot of governing seems to be getting doing, so bringing a screaming baby in, by all means, carry on. But that's not what should be happening. Yes, they're quite right. If you've got the baby, then find a sitter for it while, you are, while you're in Parliament. It has to be done. You cannot bring a baby into Parliament. You cannot bring kids in. I can't take my dog in there. I don't want to bring my budgery guys in there either. I don't want to bring my granny in either, for that matter. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very serious place of work and should be treated as such. Well, I'm very pleased that the Speaker drew a line under it. Yeah, well, look, I, I feel the same. I, I certainly feel that one of the areas which has allegedly been addressed, but it doesn't seem to have been addressed because it seems to have gone back to the way it was, is the shouting down of somebody who's trying to make a speech. And some of the behaviour really is puerile. I mean, it's more like uh, working with a gang of uh, YTS kids than listening to serious politicians at times. But I think, um, you know, I think this is one area where the difference between a male politician and a female politician can get quite um, difficult to understand because, you, you know, um, by all means, you'd expect any male to be able to say, look, you know, um, to the to his partner, wife, whatever, you know, you look after the children. Uh, but I mean, if you are trying to um, play the role of mother, plus look after the constituency business, uh, I don't think you can do it, quite frankly. Well, of course you can't, Vince. You can't sit in the Houses of Parliament nursing a child, keeping your eye on it, trying to stop it from crying, keep it fed, look, look, make sure it's perfectly OK, and pay attention to what's going on in the Houses of Parliament so you can make a proper input on behalf of your constituents. That's impossible. I don't care what you do. It's like pat, patting your head and rubbing your stomach. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It doesn't need to happen. And anybody who, who, who decides they're going to take a kid in, take their dog in, bring their horse in to the Houses of Parliament, he's totally out of it. And, and Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, uh, I, I, I do admire him. Uh, and he, he's not afraid of speaking up. Good. He's called the Speaker. But he's not afraid of speaking up. And I'm very pleased and I really hope that that is the end of it, that that, that draws a line under all of this. But what he has to do, I don't know how he's going to do it, is make parliamentarians do parliamentary work, not just have a, 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 a slanging uh, row. Um, I mean, what was it? I'm telling you, on the news, there we, on yesterday, last night, I watched on the news, the BBC News, it was a clip of the Houses of Parliament where two or three um, of the opposition uh, were, were discussing or, or, or regaling the Prime Minister over a Christmas party he may have had last year. What the mm. hell's that about? Ridiculous. You know what's going on in this world? Everything but people worrying about Christmas parties. Mm. Get, on with, get on with your job. Start ruling the country. Start looking after us and stop worrying about somebody's Christmas party, for God's sake. Well, I, I, you see, I think this is part of a bigger picture of stupidity to most people, but underlying it is a group of people who are trying to orchestrate the undermining of Parliament. Remember that Barbados went to its republic state, uh, status yesterday, yeah. and behind that is a, a lot of Chinese money. 
I think the danger is here, and it's even in Parliament and places like that. Let me just give you the last one then, which is um, it's the first time an international fund w uh, for elderly people in Spain's Mediterranean coast. And um, it's a group called Grupo Goya and Kerr Property Investor, Belgian listed real estate company specializing in housing mm. for seniors. So you probably know a bit about this, do you? I do, yeah. Yeah, that's well. It's in my pueblo. Of course, it I is. I live in Alfaz del P. Yeah. Um, which is, for those that don't know it, which is probably most people, uh, it's a very small town. Um, there was three thousand uh, population when I first came here. I think there's now best part of twenty thousand. Um, it's mainly um, it's it's a massive mixture of, of of nationalities. My kids went to school here from 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 day one, and at the local school, which is the pueblo school there was 59 different nationalities uh, in the school at that, that time. Uh, Norwegians. There are more Norwegians in our little village of Alfaz del P than anywhere else in the world. They, they, for some reason, decided to set up home in Alfaz del P. So we have a massive a Norwegian community. And May the 17th, National Day, is, is well celebrated in the village. Um, but this, this, um, this uh, establishment, this home, shall we say, residential home called the forum uh, it was built many years ago i can't remember when it was built but it's it's a home for retired folk shall we say yeah uh, now the idea is you you pay an ingo in for your apartment uh, whatever size you want and then you pay a monthly rent on top of that what do you get for that you theoretically get a lot of care um you're looked after um uh, there's, you, you can have as much care or as less care as you wish There'll be nursing care there and doctors, etc., cetera, uh, psychologists, uh, all manner of care in, in the complex for you at the drop of a hat to make use of in your, your, your dying years. And that's exactly what they are. Because when you die, you leave everything behind. You don't own anything. Uh, the first one was built in Benidorm, actually, Theodad Patricia, yeah. which originally, which originally was, was for the military. It was a retirement home for the military. And it got taken over by, by private investment. And that was exactly that. It was you literally the same thing. You, you, a friend of mine, um, she bought uh, bought in there um, because her husband was quite unwell, and he insisted that they they live very close to a doctor, and that was as close as you can get because mm. uh, they're doctors and nurses on site. And they did, and they bought in. But he died. I think he died two or three years after they moved there, and she never wanted to live there. And she eventually got herself back to the UK to live with her daughter in the UK, but lost everything. They sold their apartment they did have to buy into this one because you don't get anything back. If you leave of your own will and accord, you don't take anything back with you. There's nothing back. There's nothing nothing you could sell. You can't sell that to me. It, it goes straight back to the company. Yeah. So uh, it, it's um, working on the principle that there's no sleeves in a shroud, no pockets in a shroud. Yeah. You can't take, you can't take your money with you. So when you get when you get nearer the uh, the end of your days, you realise that money is futile. And if, if by selling your apartment and you buying one of these apartments, buying in inverted commas because you're paying for it but you don't own it, you get the best of theoretically the best of care around there um, to keep you alive longer. Terry, then, I've only got a couple of minutes left. It. I want to just get your feelings from what Ayito Pereth, who is from Senior Residency Consultant Geracon. 
uh, says the main limitations concern their use, given that they're often rotational properties and the fact that you can't buy these apartments, which is exactly no. what you were saying. And then she went on to say, what's more, there has been so far little demand from Spanish retirees in Spain. People prefer to buy a property mm. and leave it to their children who take care of the parents to inherit. Yeah. Uh, although she says this is changing. Um, have you seen much of a change there? No, no, because it's that's the one thing that uh, amazed me, and I didn't realise it until you get to know about it, and you, then you realise how wonderful that is. The idea in your life is that um, when you when you are married and you have children, your job is to uh, obtain property during your lifetime, not just yours, during your lifetime to leave to your kids, so that when your kids get married, they've got a property to walk into that uh, doesn't cost them anything. So what great, it's wonderful, no pressure on your marriage. So they, they move into your property or they'll move into granny's property and granny will come and live with you. So the kids move out of the house, but granny comes back in to move, live with you. So you look after granny. And so it's, it's, it's a mixture of care and, and keeping the property within the family. And if you think about it, it's a wonderful thing to do. I mean, my daughter, uh, she's, she's got two properties. They're out today looking for a third one. They're embarking on that already, yeah. so that when when they die, there there'll be properties there for their kids to take over and to go and live with, you know, etc. It's 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 a wonderful idea. So mm-hmm. if you've got a business that relies on the fact that you buy an apartment from our company but you never own it, that's a very hard one to sell to the Spanish. What you can sell to the Spanish very easily is a mortgage. Yeah. All right, Eric. Uh, do you know what I said Eric there? Goodness gracious me. That's all right. Talk about I'm thinking of something totally different. I've just come to the, well, we've just gone over the hour in actual fact. So um, with that, Terry, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. I've got our music playing. And, uh, obviously, we look Lovely. forward to chatting again this time next week. Igualmente, señor. Muchísimas gracias. De nada. 